Um, so this morning I'm going to preach from these five verses on uh, providence and pain. We'll look at providence and pain in the book of Ruth. Uh, this book is a short story, and it's just really one of just ordinary people who lived and loved and experienced pain and experienced loss. You don't see uh, supernatural events occurring. You don't see some uh, mighty man like Samson come along. You don't see waters parted. It's just, like I said, ordinary people who lived a life with trials and, and then had and see how they were brought through those trials to experience joy. You see God's providence in their pain and how he brings them through. You could say that it's about a man and a woman through many unlikely circumstances met, fell in love, got married, and started a family. And basically that's what the book is about. It's a it's a uh, a story of love and a story of sacrifice and of redemption and how you have a woman at the beginning who is a, is a widow in a desperate situation and then she has hope in a man that she loves and her hope resides on if he will come and, and save her and, and, and marry her and deliver her out of her hardship and, and you follow the story of these two until, until you have the, the blessed happy ending and so, just on the, the story aspect, it's a, it's a wonderful story, but there's more to the story here than just that. This love story, this uh, romance, you might say, between this man and a woman and, and how their family began. But Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, these were all real people who lived in real times, but God has ordained their life to be part of instruction for us to tell a bigger story. So this is not a made-up story, but it's a real story that God has ordained their lives in providence and then, then tells their history to give us another piece of the big story. The story of humanity lost in sin and God's plan and promise to redeem His people. So in the Old Testament, God ordained these stories of these people's lives to be part of the story of redemption. And so as you take Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Joshua and Judges, you get a picture of God, you get um, laws, you get ceremonies, you get types. But now in the story of these people, it adds to that picture that we already have. And it adds to... The, the, the story of the one who will come and save us, the one who would come and redeem us, the one who would come and finally deliver us. And so uh, as we look at in the, these messages at this book, we're going to see both things. We're going to see the, the, the real life story of God and his providence in their lives, but we're also going to see Christ because Jesus himself says the Old Testament testifies of him. So this book testifies of Jesus. And we see God working in miraculous ways. And though he might not do so in supernatural ways, as he did in other times, 
He's not going to cause the sun to stand still. He's not going to call the walls of Jericho to fall. He's not going to part the Red Sea. But his, his hand is, is all throughout this book, working in ordinary ways and bringing uh, his plan to fruition in his providence and through the pain of this family. So we will see uh, this morning, Lord willing, that God is in control of history. He is in control of famine. He is in control even in our choices. And he is in control in our lives. So first of all, God is in control of history. The very first verse of Ruth says, And it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now that's not an unimportant uh, phrase. That, that, that sets us down in a particular time in the history of Israel. And it wasn't a happy time. The book of Judges has a, a lot of cool stories. Those were my favorite kind of stories when I was little, and I'd hear the Sunday school stories. Those, those were my favorite. You had you know, Gideon and, and Samson. You know, I, I love to hear those stories. The days when the judges rule. But sit down and read it from start to finish. And it'll make you a little sad, and it might make you a little sick reading what happened in this time. Almost like the Wild West in some regards where, where there was no law. There, there was law, but nobody paid attention to it. Very few did. There's a theme that runs through the book of Judges. If you just flip back to the left a few pages in Judges 17 and verse number 6, we'll see a few verses here, and you see that there's a theme. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance. Chapter 19, verse number 1. And, and it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then finally, chapter 21. In verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And now you come to Ruth. Now it came to pass in those days when the judges ruled. That's the, the setting that this book is written. It's not a setting of great times of victory in Israel, but a great times where everybody just pretty much did whatever they wanted to do. There was no king because God was supposed to be the king. But they didn't follow what God said to do. They did what was right in their own eyes. See, in the book of Judges, God put the people in the land. Joshua brought them into the land. They were supposed to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, but they didn't do it. God had prepared them in, and you read in the book of Exodus how God began to prepare them. He gave them laws for the tabernacle. Um, in the book of Leviticus, it gives them laws of sacrifice. He gave, us, gave the laws to the first generation in the book of Exodus. Then he gave them the laws again in the book of Deuteronomy to the second generation because the first died in the wilderness. And he said, here's a story. Here's what happened. Here's why your, the previous generation didn't go in. Now, if you want blessing, you will, you will listen to me. 
And so Joshua brings them to the land. But they didn't need a king because God was supposed to be their king. They were to obey God. They had the law of God. They had priests. They had uh, uh, instructions for uh, the, the tabernacle. They had instructions for worship. They had the law of God on how they were to live, how they were to love their neighbor, how they were to treat their neighbor, how they were to treat the strangers. They had everything they needed. But what you find in the book of Judges is that people would not obey. That's the very first problem you have in the book of Judges. They didn't obey. In chapter uh, 2 of Judges, verses 1 through 5, you kind of find the setting of this. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I have made you to go up out of Egypt, and I have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. The Lord God says, I will never break my covenant with you. I am faithful. But you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words that all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. So right from the very beginning, even when Joshua was still alive, they didn't do what God said, and it was going to be a thorn for the rest of their days. I said I had splinters in my hand. And that, that, that's aggravating, isn't it? You, just, you got that in your hand, and you can't get it out. And it's just, it's just always there nagging. Well, that's what these nations were going to be to Israel. God said, drive them all out. He said, no, now they're going to be splinters. A splinter you just can't get rid of. And you're going to have them the rest of your days. Because you didn't listen to me. Well, after that, through the rest of the book of Judges, you find a cycle of the same thing. They lived among the people. Verse 12, it says, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, followed other gods, the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. Then judgment would come. Then they would cry out to God, God save us. God would send a judge, deliver the people. The people would rejoice at the deliverance of God, rejoice in God's mercy, and live a period of time following after the Lord until so they went right back to the old gods. And then God would bring judgment upon them. And then they would cry out to God for deliverance and God would send a judge and God would deliver them. They would rejoice in God's mercy. They'd live a little while until they go back to the old gods and it just keeps happening over and over again. It's a cycle. God would send a judge, he would deliver them, and then set them straight. When the judge would die, they'd go right back to the old ways. The book starts with rebellion and it ends in a civil war. The civil war starts with the wife that ran away from her husband. The husband goes off to find her. 
It ends in the bloodshed of close to 65,000 men. And then you have that ominous passage. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now the book of Ruth shows us that even in these dark times, there was a remnant. Judges and Ruth shows us, as I read there, that God will never break his covenant with his people. And there's always a remnant who wouldn't go along with the crowd. And you see that in Boaz, in the book of Ruth. There's always a remnant who loved the Lord and trusted the Lord and faithful. Because God is faithful. But this is, the, this is where Ruth is setting. And so when it tells us there's a famine in the land, even though it doesn't tell us why, we can probably guess why. We can probably guess why that there's famine in the land. So we see God has brought these people and set them in this particular time because he is in control. We saw the angel of the Lord come and tell um, the people of Israel what was going to happen. He told them, you, you all are going to rebel. And they wept and they cried and said, oh no, we don't want this to happen. We don't want to rebel. And what they do? They rebelled just like the Lord said they were going to do. He knew their heart. The Lord is in control of history. The, hist- the historical um, narrative that we find in the Old Testament is ordained by God. It's, it's somewhat amusing to me to hear people say that if you don't go along with certain ideas, you're on the wrong side of history. Well, the Lord is the one who ordains history. And I can guarantee you that if you're not on the Lord's side, you're not on the right side, if there is such a thing as a right side of, of, of history, if that's even the right way to, to look at things. But we know God is in control of history. And, the only, and what we need to do is be a following of the Lord. And we see that God has, control, has ordained this, um, the, the lives of these people. Well, secondly, we find that there was a famine. So God is in control also of the famine. There was a certain man, this ordinary man, a regular man, this certain man, of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so there was, there's a little um, irony here, I guess you could say, that in the land of Judah... In the house of bread, there was no bread. There was famine there. Now, we uh, experience some, uh, some hardships now. You know, you see, and it might get a whole lot worse. You, you know, higher prices, supply problems, all these things. And, that, you know, that's a real problem for people. But... Whenever a famine would hit in this time, and who knows, it may come to that, but, but when the famine would hit this time, you know, you're talking starvation. You're talking times, well, um, there in the Old Testament where people were, were selling um, dung and donkey heads for, for, for sustenance. People were buying those things. They were high prices for sustenance. That's how bad the famine was. People were literally starving to death. So this, this was a, a terrible time. 
But see, the, the difference is, in the Old Testament, these were covenant people. The angel of the Lord said there, in Joshua, he would not break his covenant. So Israel as a nation were a covenant people. See, God had led him into this land of promise, and he made a covenant with him. So let's, let's go back and look at some verses in Deuteronomy, chapter number 7. It says, in verse number 1, When the Lord shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it. He's going to cast out all the nations that you say there in the rest of verse number 1. The Lord shall deliver them before thee and destroy them. He said, don't make any covenant with them. The end of verse number 2. He says not to marry with them. Be separate. He says to destroy them. Break down their altars. Don't worship them in verse 5. Then in verse 6, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the peoples that are on the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for you were few, fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the hand of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keepeth commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not back be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day. Then he says, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep them and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto the fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will bless the fruit of thy womb. Now, remember that. He will bless with children. And the fruit of thy land, thy corn and thy wine and thy oil and thy increase of thy kind and thy flocks, and thy sheep, and the land which he sware thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you, or your cattle. The Lord will take away thee all sickness, and put none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which thou knowest upon thee. And thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee, and thy eyes shall have no pity upon them, neither shalt thou serve their gods, for that will be a snare unto, unto thee. So in this covenant, God made with the people. He brings them into a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. A land that is a good land. In chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, verse 7, Lord bringeth thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and of deep springs of the valleys of the hill, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive oil and honey. A land where thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack in anything. A land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. I read that and I started getting hungry. <laughs> There's a land flowing with, with everything that you could want. Milk and honey and, and pomegranates and and vineyards, and wheat, and barley. There's no lack there. 
Why? Because it is a good land. Why is it a good land? Because God made it a good land. And he brings them in there and sets them in this and gives them farms that they didn't have to begin and cities they didn't have to build and wells they didn't have to dig. And he says, keep my commandments and you will be blessed among all people upon the earth. The covenant people lived in this covenant land. And if they obeyed, then God would bless and bless beyond measure. He would give them children. He would give them land. He would give them food. He would give them nourishment. Not just a little bit, but flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 11 and verse 13. It says, And it shall come to pass, if that if thou shalt hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain, Rain thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil. I will send grass in thy fields and thy cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain in your land yield not her fruit unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Now here's the, the flip side of that covenant. God said, I will bless you with abundance. I will bless you with rain. I will bless you with, with uh, food. You just got to listen to what I say. If you do that, then there's no problem. If you don't do that, well then we've got problems. If you go into this land I give you, and you start worshiping these other gods, you have broken the covenant that I've made with you. In verse 26, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord. But turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. So now we get even more context to the setting here, don't we? It's not just people living in a random land. These were people, covenant people, living in a lawless time, full of lawless people, rebellious people. There was no king in Israel. There was no guidance in Israel. Everybody, they, no one would, would listen to God's word. Everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. Elijah and I were talking about the folly of, of, of the libertarian idea of, of running the government. When you say, well, let's just let everybody do what they want to do. Well, that, that's all good and fine if everybody is moral people. But if you just let everybody do what you want to do, then you get the book of Judges, where they take a woman and, and chop her up into pieces. You get some of the, the vile things that, that happen in, 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 in sinfulness, because people do what is right in their own eyes. Well, this is where they live. And now, because they turned after false gods and because they did what was right in their own eyes and not what was right in God's eyes, God's true to his promise and God has cursed them. And now there's a famine in the land. Now, the book of Ruth doesn't say that, but, but God has said that. Because as long as they were following God, there would be abundance in the land. Now, America is not Israel, and God, we don't live in the old co covenant system. 
So it, we can't just make a one-to-one correlation with that. But we can see from Scripture that because Israel didn't keep the covenant, then famine came. Their job was to follow God's instructions and be blessed, to be a holy and separate people, and God would bless them in this life. But they couldn't do it. See, this is the point of it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't obey. God sent them in a a, a wonderful land. He says, just drive out the enemies, be separate. If you drive out the enemies and be separate and do what I say and keep yourself separate, then I'll bless you above, above all. And they failed right at the beginning, and they continued to disobey. Moses couldn't enter in the promised land because he sinned. Joshua led them in but didn't give them perfect rest because they didn't drive out all the people. The people failed in living in accordance to God's law because they forsook God's law and did what was right in their own eyes and then uh, went after false gods. Then the judges came and they were sinners and they would only bring temporary relief until you get to Samson who, who half the time he couldn't tell if he, what side he was on, really. I mean, he was not a, a moral man at all. The kings come along, and then the kings failed. And all this does is show the people of Israel they needed a, a true judge, a perfect judge, a king, a priest, a deliverer who would not fail. Now, in the new covenant, God deals with us as sons. And it's not a, a relationship like this. We don't live in a covenant land where if we do good, good things will happen. We live as sons adopted into the family on a pilgrimage to the Father's house. But but our failures will bring the chastisement of our Father and as Gentiles, a disobedient to the ways of God will bring judgment upon any people. But we see here God is in control of this famine. You don't say, well, God's in control of the blessings, the land of milk and honey, but when famine comes, God has nothing to do with that. No, that's not what the Bible says. God said, I will bring the famine. I will shut off the rain. God said, I'll just turn it off, and there'll be no rain. And then you'll have no plants, you'll have no grass, and if you have no grass, you'll have no um, cattle, and you'll have no uh, meat, and you'll have no milk. Then you'll have no honey. You'll have nothing. I do that. I will do that. And so we see that God is in control of their lives. He's in control of even the famine. Now, as we go on, we see that um, God is also in control of not just uh, the famine, but he's also in control of um, he's in control of our choices. Look there in verse number two, back in our text. Um, there was a that certain man. His name was Elimelech. Elimelech means God is king. Now there's another little bit of irony. Judges ends, there's no king in Israel. And Elimelech has the right name. God is king. 
because that's the way it should have been. Remember, God told Samuel, well, I didn't, they don't reject me, they, re- they don't reject you, they reject me. When they want Saul to be king, Elimelech, God is king. But every man does what is right in their own eyes. Whether Elimelech acted like his name or not, it was true, God was king. And so they rebelled, and so they suffered. And they suffered this famine. So set in the context of a rebellious land, suffering the the punishment and chastisement of God because they did not keep his command, so he brought a famine upon the land. That was God's doing. We see a, a faithful God. According to my count, the name Jehovah, the Lord's covenant name, is used 18 times in this book. It is Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, that is with his people in this book. And so, despite what Elimelech does, by leaving the land of promise and going into the land of Moab, God does not break his promises to his people. God is a keeper of his promises. He keeps keeps his promise of bringing famine like he said he would do, but he also keeps his promise to his people. And so in this, we see God is in control of even our choices. Now, Elimelech chose to leave in a famine. And like I said, this is the old covenant with the covenant people. This is not like Elimelech leaving West Virginia because he had to go find a job. You know, it's not the same thing. You can't equate one to one in this. But what we have is Elimelech, a member of the covenant people, living in the covenant land, under the chastisement of God for their rebellion, saying, I know God said that if we rebel, he would bring famine. But I found a loophole. I'll just go to Moab because bread's a plenty in Moab. And so that's what he did. So this is more akin to a man trying to get out of God's judgment than it is for him looking out for his family. Well, I'm not going to make light of this. I, you know, I, I can certainly sympathize and you know, can't even say what I would do. I might have done the same thing. I don't, I'm not saying that's right. But I'm not going to say, well, I would have never done such a thing. No, we can't do that. But here he was. He had a wife, two little boys, and they were hungry. There was famine. He looked around, no rain. Hungry in the house of bread. He says, well, let's just go out to Moab. And yeah, I know. People worship false gods down in Moab, but I won't do that. And, and yeah, I know that things are bad down in Moab, but it'll be different for me. And I'll just tell you that it's not going to be different. It's never going to be different. I, I, I know too many to count times where people said that. I know that there's no church where I'm going, but you know, I'll, I'll keep... I'll keep worshiping the Lord. I'll keep steady. But, but that's, not just, that's just not the way it works. 
people, Elimelech said, what's best right now for the here and now, not what's best according to God's standards. What should have Elimelech done? Well, he should have, with the people of Bethlehem, repented. Because that's the promise. That's the promise that God gave them. That if they would turn from their sins, he would hear them and forgive them and heal their land. You know, that, that's the promise of my people. Repent. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, And it shall come to pass when all these things come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee. Thou shalt return unto the Lord thy God and shalt obey his voice according to all I command thee. Thou and with all thy children with all thy heart that the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. And I'll talk about um, a little bit later on, but, but that is what God has promised. If you will return, if you will repent, then I will have mercy upon you. But Elimelech, was, was, his choice was, well, let's just get out of here and we'll hang out with the heathens until things get better. Liam Gallagher said that God had promised Israel if they came back to him, he would give them a very physical blessing. Elimelech took his family from Israel to Moab and moved his family from the one place on earth where God promised to be present because his tabernacle was there. The one place God had promised to bless his people and moved them away to the only place or from the only place where they could find God in those days. There was no church or synagogue or temple down in Moab where they could worship God. It was there in this land. That's where God had chosen to dwell. And so Elimelech made a bad, bad choice. He took his wife and his kids down to Moab. Elimelech gets there to save his life. And what happens? He goes to Moab and dies. God's in control of our lives. He's in control of the day of our death. Sometimes we might say that, well, I have to do this so I can do well in life. Well, do you? Because sometimes um, that's not the case. As you find here, Elimelech went to escape the pains of the famine to provide a life for his family, and he ends up dying. Well, first they moved. First they went. Verse number two, it says, and they continued there. Then verse number four then they settled. Because at the end of verse number four, after Elimelech died, his boys married two Moabite women, and they dwelled there about ten years. Elimelech might have just said, Well, let's just go down there and, and hang out for a while, and then we'll come right back. But now they've been there for over a decade. His boys married Moabite women, and now they're rooted there. We don't know how long he planned on staying, but sometimes it's easier to get to a place than to get out of a place. You know, I know that myself. Sometimes it's easier to get somewhere than it is to get out of somewhere. And so 
They just kept going, kept going. Now they're, they're rooted down there. And, and apart from God working in their lives, they would have stayed there. But what happened? Well, Malon and Killian died also of them. And the women was left of her two sons and her husband. And that was it. But you know what else they didn't have in 10 years of marriage? She didn't have any grandchildren. Uh, Naomi didn't. Remember what God said to uh, one of the curses of their chastisement would be? Barrenness. He tried to run from the judgment of God and he goes down there and he said, well, we'll just, we'll just camp out here. And his boys marry two girls and what happens? He dies, the boys die, the women are childrenless. And now you've got Naomi and two daughter-in-laws with no way of surviving. They couldn't, they tried to run from the hand of God, but God was down in Moab too. Naomi lost her husband. She lost her boys. She experienced famine, left without family, without home. She's, now she's grieved. No prospect or ability to provide for herself. Now, I want to be careful. God doesn't say why he died. And I don't know exactly what was on his heart nor on his mind, but we see the results of, his, of what he did. God was very clear in what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to stay there and walk in God's ways. And if they didn't walk in God's ways, they were supposed to repent and come back to God. It didn't say, stay here as long as it's blessing and whenever there's curse, run for your lives. But those curses came that they might turn from their ways to look to God, not go somewhere else. Ruth seems to believe that this was the result of their rebellion too, because in verse number 20, it says, call me, no more, call me not Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. And then she says it was the, the Almighty that had afflicted her. She knew what happened. She understood what happened. She knew that even in this, though, that God was in control of her lives. So sometimes we live with the consequences of bad decisions and, and live those consequences in our lives. But what I want to leave you with as we close, that it is God who is in control. Because this book, like I said, is about Jesus. If you get to the end of the book, it gives the, gene the genealogy. The last verse says, and Jesse beget David. Ruth is in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth is that Moabitess girl that one of those boys married. Ruth was one of God's people down in Moab. And so you have Elimelech who left and went to Moab like he shouldn't have done. And you had those boys marry Moabite girls that they shouldn't have done because God said not to. But the Lord saved one of those girls. And she comes back and she's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. God controlled these things. And like I said, they had rooted themselves down in Moab. And apart from God's providence and bringing them back, they would have never come back home. But God rescued this family. 
rescued Ruth from pagan Moab. He redeemed her and delivered her. And so this shows the part of the greater story. The story of a greater redeemer, a greater savior, one who controls all things to come to pass. One who will go and and rescue a Gentile girl and bring her into the covenant people to go and find her and deliver her and bring her and purchase her and save her and bless her beyond measure. It's a story of God's order in in this world, his providence in our pain. And so as as we as God's people are, are in Christ, we know how the story ends. We know that we will be glorified. And that every, everything in our life is ordained by our loving God. And that we need not fear, for God is in control. He is in control even when we mess up, even when we do wrong. He will chasten us and bring us right back to himself. I read Psalm 107 before the service. I'll read it again. Here it says, they wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them forth by the right way, that they might go into a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. You who know Christ this morning, when you are in struggles and hardships and trials, trust in God's providence and to cry out unto the Lord in the day of your trouble that he may deliver you out of your distress. Look to the mighty hand of God and know that, that and take fresh courage, as Cooper said in his hymn, that the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his providence. Trust in his his working because he has redeemed you in Christ. He has protected you and brought you out of of the heathen nation and brought you into his family. To know that God is in control of of hardships, of famine, of of our choices, of our lives, and even of our deaths. And look to him and trust in him and follow him and, and rest assured that God is with you.